Genesis 19, um, it's page 13 in the Bibles in the pews. And reading verses 30 through 38. Now Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not a man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger arose and lay with him, and he did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Thus, both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. And the younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of the Ammonites to this day. Good morning, church. So, a couple weeks ago, for those of you who are here, we preached the story of Lot and Sodom, and we gave a little heads up that there's a lot of mature content in that story, and that some young ears might not be ready for that content yet, and here we are two weeks later, and we're in a similar situation. So just another reminder that if there are some young ears who uh, aren't quite ready for a more mature story, that there's still child uh, ministry rooms available at different places in the church building that they can go to. I don't think this is a story from the Bible any of us would choose to preach from if we were trying to come up with, like, what's the best passage for the next week. And actually, that impoverishes us if we only pick the stories that seem like they'd be good for us to preach rather than all the things that God wrote down for us for our good. So that's really good that as a church we're walking through the book of Genesis verse by verse, passage by passage, chapter by chapter, so we can hear everything that God wants to say to us. Now when we confront really uh, disturbing imagery like this, it can be our tendency to flee away from it, to avoid it, and to like withdraw from what's happening. But instead, what we want to do is we want to pay careful attention to what the author is doing so that the story can have the effect on our hearts that it's meant to have. So that's the path that we're going to take this morning. Now, just a reminder to catch us up with context. The last 24 hours have been an absolute whirlwind in Abraham and Lot's life. If you remember, Abraham, he's just hanging out by a few trees, having an okay time with his family. Still waiting for that baby. It's really hard. And then some angels show up and start talking to him about what God's plan is. He says, hey, God is about to destroy this city, the city where your nephew lives because of their sin. And Abraham starts praying for that city. The angels go to that city. They actually warn Lot. He doesn't leave. They bring him out of that city. Fire and destruction rain down on it. All the other cities of the valley, they're reduced to nothing. Basically, the... Uh, what happens is because of human sin, God responds as a just judge and decreates, brings what was back into the nothingness from which it came as a just response for what happened. So what happened leading up to this point? 
And Lot, because of his, the faithful prayers of Abraham, him and his household barely escape from the city. His sons-in-law stay behind and they perish. His wife perishes along the way because she looks back. Maybe she tries to go back. And now it's just Lot and his two daughters and they are running for their lives, barely escaping. And as we get to this part of the story, the question we should be asking is now that they're out of Sodom, is the Sodom out of them? And that's basically what we're going to see unfold in the story is that though they've left the city of Sodom, the city of Sodom has not left them and there's devastating results and consequences because of that. Okay, so now we're caught up to our context. Let's hop into our passage together. So Lot went up out of Zoar and lived in the hills with his two daughters, for he was afraid to live in Zoar. So he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now Lot has a tremendous problem. His problem is he won't trust God to provide for him, and so he goes out of his way and out of God's way to provide for himself. So after Lot left the city of Sodom, God said, go to this place out in the mountains and I'll provide for you out there in the mountains. But for some reason, Lot just cannot conceive of God taking care of him out in the mountains. So he says, God, I need another city like Sodom. Help me go to Zoar, that little city. Just don't destroy it. Let me go to that little city. And God sends him there, and he goes there. And once he arrives, it's not good enough for him for some reason. He's afraid still. Maybe the citizens are like the citizens of Sodom, and they're despicable and untrustworthy. Whatever the reason, he has to leave again, and he goes up and he lives in a cave with his daughters. I think what we should be seeing is that Lot is on a backwards journey of fear. So if you go back to Genesis 12, to the very start of everything with him and Abraham, he starts off going on a journey with Abraham in faith, the place God provides, will provide for them. Do you guys remember that at the very beginning? He goes out in faith, and God brings them on a forward journey in purposes. Now Lot is on a corrupt journey backwards. He's no longer living in faith. He's living in fear, and he's not going to the place God wants him to go. He's going to the place he thinks he needs to go to be safe. So he's on a corrupt journey, and obviously he's going to end up in a corrupt destination. And I think what the Bible is showing us, as so many places in the Bible do, is it sets out faith and fear as opposites of one another. Faith and fear. Faith sees God as big and generous and able to provide. Fear sees God as small and unable to provide, and your circumstances as big. All of us are tempted to live in fear instead of faith. And at the end of the day, if we live in fear instead of faith, it kills us and destroys us. The problem is not feeling the emotion of fear. I'm going to say that again. The problem is not feeling the emotion of fear. That's a normal thing for all of us to feel in a fallen world where we're limited creatures. The question is, are we going to give in to fear and let it control us rather than let God and faith guide us forward? So I just warn you this morning and encourage you this morning 
At those moments where your circumstances seem like they're so tough and they're so big that you can't trust God and you have to sin to make it work, don't give in to fear in those moments. Faith says, even though this obstacle, this boundary, this loneliness, this addiction, this poverty that I have is so big, I believe my God is larger still, and I will not sin. I will not sin. I will trust my God instead. Lot is not in that place. Lot's in another place. Lot's in his fear, and he's going on a journey of fear, and he ends up in a deadly destination, which is in this verse. It says, so he lived in a cave with his two daughters. Now the cave uh, is an imagery for us of his spiritual condition. The next place a cave shows up in the story, it's going to be a burial place for someone. The place Lot and his daughters choose to live is essentially in a tomb. That's where their fear leads them, into a tomb. So rather than living above the world in the realm of life, they choose to live beneath the world in the realm of death. That's where their sinful desires lead them. And just a quick lesson for us, just observing Lot's life, is that just like fear is deadly, isolation from the people of God is deadly. Being apart from the people of God is deadly. Lot does well when he's with Abraham and his household and when he's with the God of Abraham. The further and further separate he gets from Abraham and his household, the worse and worse it gets for Lot. We have an enemy, and he wants to separate you from the people of God so that he can remove you from their influence and put you under his. So this morning, if you feel temptation to separate from the people of God, maybe you feel hurt by someone in this room. Maybe you feel a ton of shame and like you don't belong here because of the sin you've committed. And I just want to remind you this morning that it's a lie and it's there to destroy you. Isolation is a killer, just like this cave is a killer, and it's... And we are inviting, and God is inviting us this morning, continue to be with the people of God where my influence and my presence is there to help redeem you and bless you and guide you safely home. So we're going in the wrong direction. We're ending up in the wrong place. And then, of course, spiritual death is going to play out before our eyes. That's what's going to happen in these next verses here. And the firstborn said to the younger, Our father is old, and there is not man on earth to come into us after the manner of all the earth. Come, let us make our father drink wine, and we will lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night, and the firstborn went in and lay with her father. He did not know when she lay down or when she arose. Now, at this point, fear is not just governing Lot and his decisions. Fear is contagiously passed throughout his entire family. His oldest daughter, she's afraid that Lot's old and he's going to die and there's not a man who can bring forth offspring through her. Pretty soon the younger daughter is going to give in to that fear and she's going to do the exact same thing. Says Lot's legacy and leadership, the fear with which he leads, is spreading throughout his whole household and bringing confusion and death to everyone. The oldest daughter is afraid that there won't be a future for her or for her family, that this is the end. She's going to die in a cave. Her life is going to be reduced to purposeless and nothingness. And so she comes up with a scheme to preserve life and offspring for herself. Fear is like blinders. 
what we know from the story is that there are men left on the earth. She's wrong. But she can't see that. When you're not looking for God to provide, and you think you have the solution, something like blinders comes on your eyes, where you stop seeing and you stop looking for what God can do for you, and you just start doing what you think is right in the situation, and you rush into it, and you make hasty decisions, and those decisions can be deadly. She has blinders on her. She doesn't know that God can provide. She's not looking for God to provide, and she's rushing into deadly mistakes. Whenever you sin, whenever I sin, doesn't it feel like you just kind of rush into it? Like you just stop thinking, you stop considering other possibilities, you just all of a sudden just rush into it. Rarely do you ever slowly and contemplatively sin. It seems to be more of a spur of the moment reaction in a moment of vulnerability and weakness. And it's where fear leads us, and that's the exact moment that Lot and his daughters are in, and that's exactly what happens. Now we're watching what unfolds in this family, and it's clear that they have brought the corrupt value system of Sodom with them. They have brought the system of uh, immoral sex and immoral uh, behavior from Sodom with them into the cave. What a reminder for us that the answer for our sin is never we need new circumstances. I just need to go to a new place. I just need a new church. I just need something new because my circumstances are causing you to sin. No, our circumstances never cause us to sin. Our fallen hearts cause us to sin. What Lot and his daughters did not need was a new circumstance. They needed new hearts. So they end up outside of Sodom, but wherever they go, there they are. And now this place starts to seem a lot like Sodom. If you remember, in Sodom, Lot actually offers his daughters up for sexual abuse. It's like this unbelievable moment of, uh, unbelievable moment of failure in him as a father. And now, his daughters are sexually abusing him. See how his down to the next generation and corrupts and destroys them also in the same path and the same pattern. They know that what they're doing is wicked because they have to get their father drunk to do it. Just very clearly, if there's ever anything you feel like you have to get drunk to do, just what a warning. Like, stay away from that. Stay away from that. And this leads us to possibly the very lowest point in Genesis. And it's teaching us about sin. What we're witnessing here in this cave is the complete undoing of Eden. The total undoing of Eden. There's this awesome verse at the end of Genesis chapter 2 after God creates the man and the wife. It says that the man and the wife are naked and they're what? It's a beautiful picture of intimacy and love. Now we're here. We're not in a garden anymore. We're in a cave. And instead of naked and not ashamed, we're naked and utterly ashamed. It's like creation is coming apart at the seams. One point this image is making for us is that our sin and our enemy wants to decreate us. Wants to turn us into nothing. God created people with dignity, value, and purpose in the garden, and sin wants to take all of that away from us. That's what I mean. Sin wants to take all of that away from you. There's nothing in the world that can take more from you than sin can. Nothing. Not disease. Not an economic crash. 
not the death of a relative. Sin is the greatest stealer because it takes away the purpose, meaning, and dignity for which God made you. When God first made humans in his image, he made them to be his partners to bring heaven to earth, to enjoy his presence, to bring life and blessing everywhere. And now here's Lot and his daughters bringing hell to earth instead of heaven to earth. See how it completely inverted and destroyed the reason for which they existed. I don't know who you are or how high or low of a view you have of yourself, but our God has purposes for you that are greater than you can imagine. Greater than you can imagine. And there's one thing that can take all those purposes and strip them away and destroy them, and that's sin. And that's exactly what we see happening here. We see some tools that their sinful hearts use to destroy them. Alcohol and sex. Alcohol and sex. Those are not the only tools that sin uses. Those are just two tools it happens to use, and they're especially dangerous ones. They're especially dangerous is because God created both of them as good and powerful things. Alcohol is a good gift from God, and it's a powerful gift. Sex is a good gift from God, and it's an even more powerful gift. It bonds and creates relationships. It creates life and families. But its misuse takes away and destroys all of those things. So just as a reminder to myself, as a reminder to all of us here, flee from the misuse of alcohol and sex because we have an enemy who wants to use those things to destroy us. I said flee from the misuse, not the use. The way to flee from the misuse is to use them rightly, not to not use them at all. So see the difference there? Flee from the misuse of sex and alcohol by using them rightly. Now the situation gets even sadder and more broken. But we got to get to the end of this story we're in right now before we put it in the context of the bigger story and see the hope that our God has for us this morning. The next day, the firstborn said to the younger, Behold, I lay last night with my father. Let us make him drink wine tonight also. Then you go in and lie with him, that we may preserve offspring from our father. So they made their father drink wine that night also. And the younger rose and lay with him. And he did not know when she lay down or when she rose. This reads almost the same as the last few verses because the same sin repeats. The same sin repeats from the older daughter to the younger daughter. This is alluding to a bigger theme in the story that the same sin repeats from generation to generation. This happened before. There was a man who was delivered by God and he got drunk after he was saved and something shameful happened with one of his kids. Does anyone remember who this happened to? It happened to Noah. Isn't that eerie? How almost the exact same pattern unfolds? I think the point that it's making is that Children receive sin patterns from their parents and they pass it down to their children and they pass it down to their children after them. I have received sin patterns from my parents. My parents are wonderful and amazing parents and they have passed on to me their weakness and brokenness. 
Some of you had good parents. Some of you had not so good parents. But all of us have received sin and brokenness from our parents. In our story, Lot offered to give his daughters up to sexual abuse, and then they end up sexually abusing him. What we see is sin patterns passing down through the generations and death and decay passing down through the generations. As I get older, I become more and more aware of how my own weaknesses and my own tendencies actually match mine and my parents. I see more of them in me. I see more of my weakness and brokenness that came from them. And then the next few verses are going to make it utterly clear that this is a pattern in our broken, fallen world, that the fallenness and failures of parents pass to their children, because we see here in verse 36, thus both the daughters of Lot became pregnant by their father. The firstborn bore a son and called his name Moab. He is the father of the Moabites to this day. The younger also bore a son and called his name Ben-Ami. He is the father of Ammonites to this day. So both daughters are, what, they're successful, right? They, they both were able to produce sinful offspring through this path. Two nations come from these offspring, the Moabites and the Ammonites. Both of these nations have a story, and it is a grim one. Both of these nations are perverse nations who oppose the people of God. They're enemies of the people of God up until the very end. Right? The nation of Moab comes and they actually tempt Israel with sexual immorality and bring death and destruction to the camp. The Ammonites bring warfare and all kinds of violence and pain and suffering to Israel. I mean, right now, as we get to the, <coughs> as we get to the end of the story, it leaves us in a place of depression and hopelessness. Because it seems like the serpent's won. It seems like temptation has won. Lot's fallen. His daughters have fallen, and then they produce fallen nations who bring destruction and death into the world rather than blessing and life. They bring suffering and death up until the very end. Or so it seems. Or so it seems. The destruction and death that Moab and Ammon bring into the world doesn't end that way. There's actually a Moabite in the Bible that shows up later. And she marries a Hebrew man who's a righteous and godly man. And they actually start to have righteous offspring. Does anyone know the name of this Moabite? It's Ruth. Ruth is a Moabite. And she marries a man named Boaz. And they have a son named Obed. And Obed has a son named Jesse, and Jesse has a son named David. And David's a godly man who fights against the nations of the Moabites and the Ammonites and subdues them. And David has a son, and I'm not going to go through all the sons. <laughs> but eventually there's a son named Jesus. And like David, he stands up and he fights and destroys everything that the Moabites and the Ammonites stood for. What this shows is that while, gen while generational curse is real, in God's people, it does not have the final word. While generational curse is real, for God's people, it does not have the final word. If all of us are stuck together in a pattern of generational brokenness, 
And we are, by a fact of being human beings. That's why we sin. That's why our world is the way it is. If all of us are stuck, <coughs> excuse me, I'm getting over a cold this week. If all of us are stuck in a pattern of generational brokenness, we need a pattern breaker, don't we? We need someone who comes in and breaks the old pattern and creates a new pattern. And church, I submit to you this morning that in the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, that's exactly what we have. We have a new ancestor with a new pattern and a new destiny for God's people. The story of your upbringing does not have to be your story. And it does not have to be the story of your children after you. Because you have a new ancestor and a new hope in Jesus. You have a new hope for the future. That the brokenness of the past will not define the future for you or for your children. In Jesus, God can give you back everything that sin stole from you and more. Everything that was stolen from you in your childhood. Everything that was stolen from you in your adolescence. Everything that was stolen from you in your adult years. In Jesus, God can give that back to you and more. Throughout the Bible, we see a story of a God who loves to create out of nothing. That's how Genesis starts. There's a void in a pit and water and God makes a world out of it. And then as sin continues to decreate through the Bible, our God steps in and recreates what sin decreates. And Jesus comes in as the ultimate example of that. And he recreates people and he recreates hearts whose sin in the world has chewed up and destroyed. And he makes a new people. He makes a new line. He makes a new hope for anyone who comes to him. Which is why not only you have hope for yourself, but your children have hope. This morning, if you're despairing about your kids, if you're wondering, can anyone or anything save my kids? Yes, Yes, there's a God who created a world out of nothing and there is hope for you and there is hope for your kids if you'll come to his son, Jesus. The fact that he walked out of the grave is an illustration for us that there is no such thing as a hopeless situation for God's people. God wants to restore to us all of the purpose he originally gave to human beings at the beginning when he created them. You were made for great things. And even if your sin has kept you from doing great things, God wants to restore you so that you'll do great things again. And just as sin was part of the story of Jesus coming into the world, sin will be part of the story of God redeeming you and using you to redeem others. We have a God who doesn't just disregard or ignore sin and death. No, he steps in and he's so powerful that he makes it contribute to his ultimate purposes to bring life and blessing. You might have regret in your life, you might have hopelessness about the past. Like, how can God use me now? No, that God will use you now, and he loves to use you now because it displays his power, that he's more powerful than whatever broke you in the past. So what should we do from here, and where should we go? I want everyone just to consider where are fear and distrust leading you to make sinful choices that are leading you further from God? a simple question and then turn to God and trust instead he has a way for you he has a path that doesn't involve sinning it doesn't involve turning from him he has a path for you and he has a path for me 
And for us parents, let's become increasingly aware that we daily need God to be remaking our hearts through his word so that our children can be godlier and more blessed than us. We need that. Never before in my life has someone's good depended on my own sanctification as much as when I became a parent. As soon as you become a parent, someone else's good desperately depends on your sanctification. And as a parent, I feel my weakness. I feel my failure more than ever. Like I used to think I was a pretty upstanding guy until I got married and had a kid. Now I see, I see more of what's there. And I need the grace of God more than ever. And my daughter needs me to need the grace of God more than ever. And so let us parents pursue uh, relentlessly communion with our God until we become the holy parents that our kids need. Like this is, this is the trajectory of the generations over time in the Bible until Jesus steps into the picture. And then this is the trajectory when Jesus is in the picture. And that's the trajectory I want us to aim for as a church for our kids. The upward trajectory of holiness and life and blessing. And I don't mean just for parents. I mean for all of us. You don't need to be a parent to have an impact on the next generation. And as a parent, you don't just have an impact just on your kids. We're a community and a family for a reason. Every person, the next generation, depends on your holiness in this community. Do you show what Jesus is like or do you falsely portray him? Do you invest in the kids around you or do you ignore them? Right? As Christians, we stop caring about just our moment and start fighting for the generations. We are warriors for the generations like Jesus. And we start with our own that God's entrusted to us. We have a bitter struggle against sin, but we must not despair because if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. If anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The fact that Christ recreates any who come to him means that no one can leave with hope or despair unless you leave without him. Please don't leave without him. Please talk with me. Please pray with me. Please talk or pray with someone here, but don't leave without becoming a new creation in Christ the best thing in the world that could ever happen. And it's the one thing that can become a hope and salvation in a sad story like this. So please, at the very least, spend the rest of the morning praying to God, praying with one another. Come pray with me. Let's seek his face together. And let's leave, not with a sense of despair, but with hope. Let us be honest and realize that the world is as broken and fallen as the story describes. I like this story because it's honest. I like this story because it describes the world as it is. And I like this story because it points to deliverance and salvation that we have. That's what we have in the Bible. We have an honest portrayal of the world and a real and living hope that addresses it and conquers it for all of God's people. And so what's crazy is I finished a story of utter terror and horror. And I'm encouraged because of Jesus. I'm encouraged. And I hope we all are. I hope we're not beat up and despairing right now. I hope we're encouraged because we have more reason for hope than we have reason for despair because Jesus got out of the grave. Let's pray together.